Well, you can have a seat. Uh, Good morning. My name is Jacob Smith, and I'm the college pastor over at our Anderson campus. Uh, And I am just really excited that you're here with us this morning. I want to welcome you to Grace, even though I'm not a regular at Southwood anymore. I was at one point. I was a youth director here for a couple years, so it's always nice for me to come back down south to yonder went down into the woods uh, and join you guys from the great northern lands of Anderson. Uh, And I am just really excited uh, to kind of enter into this new season with you guys, the summer season uh, that is really fun. It's it's fully upon us. Coffee shops are closing at like seven o'clock, right? Because it's summer. And one of the things that we are excited to do here at Grace during summer is to essentially give our lead pastors some, some time uh, to simply redirect some of their energies. So, so Blake, you may have noticed, is not up every week this summer. He'll still be in the rotation at times, uh, but we're allowing him, we're wanting to give him freedom to redirect some of his energy towards things like our Wednesday night study through church history, which was amazing this last week, and you should come. Uh, but we will have a number of different speakers, uh, myself included, coming through the stage. And, and even though the, the roster is changing, uh, our message will be the same. We're going to be consistently focused on leaders whose lives are recorded for us in our New Testament, in our scripture. And we're studying these experiences of these men and women, not because they had everything figured out, not because they were perfect. But we're wanting to study their lives and their experiences because we see God use them in significant ways. And so we can learn so much from both their victories and their defeats, right? Which is something that a lot of us can resonate with, right? We know in our lives, we, we have high moments, we have low moments, right? We have victories, we have defeats. We have mountaintops and we've got valleys. That's just part of it. Uh, I, I know that I've experienced that a lot just through being a parent. Uh, my wife and I, we recently had our third child. Uh, he is three months old now. He's the one staring just blankly into my wife's arm, uh, But he has joined his two older siblings. So we've got a four-year-old daughter, a two-year-old son, and a three-month-old son. Uh, And one of the things that we have really experienced through parenthood over the last few years is a lot of victories and a lot of defeats, right? Where you are feeling like, man, I'm doing things right. Everything's just tracking. And then there's other moments where you're like, everything is, I've ruined them, right? Like they're doomed forever because I've made these mistakes. And I'll tell you, we look at our three-month-old son right now and we just wonder, man, what have we done, right? What have we created? What have we brought into this world? Because every single thought, action, and word from his mouth is completely self-motivated, right? Everything about his life is just so selfish. It's this beautiful contrast that God has given us between a newborn and a mother, right? Because that newborn, all he does, all he thinks about, all he says is self motivated stuff, right? Like he's thinking about what he needs. He's acting, trying to get what he needs, but he can't because his limbs just are whatever. And, and everything he says, right? Not words yet. That's like four months, you know, but, uh, he will, everything he says is self-motivated. He doesn't care about the needs of other people. He's like, I need my pacifier. And he just gets that out there. And there's never a moment, there's never been a situation in his three long months of life where we have, you know, told him like, hey, Liam, here's the deal, man. We're, we're busy. We're trying to put your sister to bed. He, there's never a moment where he's just like, oh, hey, you know, hey, you're busy, right? Yeah, I, I can wait, right? It's okay. I'll just use my hand, right? Like that's, that's never been a conversation we've had with him for a number of reasons, But he, every single moment, is thinking about himself. And again, that's an amazing contrast with his mother, with my wife. Because she is constantly uh, just 
in her thoughts, in her actions, in her words, she is serving other people. She's thinking about other people. She's serving everyone. She's getting milk cups and water cups and coffee cups. And, you know, and these, that one's for me. But, like, she's getting all these things. And her words over and over again are gracious and loving and patient and kind. And every single time, man, that these needs pop up, every single time that there's frustrations with the kid or they're flipping out because they need yogurt or whatever it might be, man, she moves into those moments with this selfless attitude, constantly thinking about acting towards, speaking for the needs of other people. And I'll tell you that something that for her is disruptive, Right? Anytime that we're forced to live a selfless life, it is incredibly disruptive, right? Because our natural bent is going to be towards that three-month-old state. There's something in us that wants to look out for number one at the cost of anything else, at any other person, any other thing, whatever. And so anytime that we're trying to live selflessly, man, that's, that's going to be disruptive. It's going to derail some desires that we might have or some passions we want to pursue or some ideas that we want to follow through on. Man, well, there's, there's disruption that comes when we deny ourselves. And yet what's incredible is that God consistently uses that act. He uses that discipline of self-denial consistently to create powerful blessings in the lives of others. The disruption that my wife feels is a personal burden of having to care for these other people. But man, through that personal burden, God brings powerful blessing to her family's life, to my life, to our children's lives. And God does this repeatedly with any of us. Right, mom, dad, brother, sister, husband, wife, what man, any person anywhere can see where man God will use self denial to bring positive, wonderful disruption to the world around them. And this morning we're looking in Acts chapter six and seven at the life of a man named Stephen. And we're looking at Stephen's life because he was used significantly by the Lord to bring powerful blessing to the world around him. And he does this through self denial. Denial. Stephen is actually who we refer to as the first Christian martyr. In other words, he was the first person to follow Jesus all the way to the grave because of his faith. And what we'll see in Acts chapter 6 and in Acts chapter 7 is that Stephen's life was such a powerful blessing because he denied himself in three key ways. He was spirit-filled, he was serving people, and he was speaking truth. These are the ways that he basically gave up his own rights, his own desires for the sake of others. And man, God used it in an incredible way. So if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 6, verse 1, we're going to see how Stephen was living this life that was filled by the Spirit, or in other words, controlled by the Spirit of the Lord. Acts chapter 6 starts like this. Now in those days, when the disciples were growing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Greek-speaking Jews against the native Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Alright, so we're looking at the early church, and we're looking at how these people who are all following after Jesus Christ, they're having to reconcile other different backgrounds and baggages that they're bringing to the table. Even though they're all united, they're like, yeah, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, God who became flesh, the Messiah who's going to save us from sin, from death. They acknowledge that, but man, they're coming from a lot of different areas, a lot of different backgrounds. And specifically right here, we're seeing that there's two groups of people who are uh, born through, you know, the Jewish nation, and yet they're coming from two distinctly different cultures. Even though her, their, their genetics are very similar, their cultures are completely different. 
Because one has given up essentially the traditional ways. The Greek-speaking Jews, another way this is translated, is the Hellenists. These Hellenistic Jews, they were the ones who had essentially said, you know what, I, I don't want to kind of follow these old kind of dying ways. Instead, I'm going to adopt just sort of the modern culture, the way that we, you know, the Greek way of thought, action, and speech. They say, well, I'm just going to kind of let that define who I am. I'm going to just adopt the broader culture. And there's other people, these native Hebraic Jews are saying, no, no, that's, that's wrong. Like we need to stay to these old ways. We need to stick to the, the tried and true paths. And so there was a culture clash. And in the middle of that, there was a need presented where essentially there were some people of great need with these widows who, who were being overlooked, who were not having their needs met. And it was seen as this kind of class divide. And so a complaint is brought up, right, between these two groups of believers. And so the 12, so meaning, in other words, Jesus' kind of 12 uh, key guys, uh, they called the whole group of the disciples together and they said, it is not right for us to neglect the word of God to wait on tables, so there's the growing community, and anytime a community is growing, there's increasing need, right? So they're saying, look, we need to make sure that we're spending our time and energy in this pursuit, on, on this role, on this task. And so what they recognize is, hey, we're going to have to diversify our leadership, right? We're going to need to raise up and develop leaders, and we're going to need to delegate some of these works to them. Why? Because, again, the community is growing, therefore needs are increasing. Grace Bible Church, Southwood has a lot of needs because it has grown considerably. Blake Jennings... Our lead pastor, he, he doesn't mow the lawn, right? He just, he doesn't. He might change the oil in your car, uh, but that, don't tell anyone. But he, he doesn't mow the lawn. Why? Because that's been delegated. Because he says, hey, you know what? There's other tasks, there's other responsibilities, other roles that I'm better suited to be in. And so we're going to delegate these responsibilities. We're going we're gonna to distribute some of this work to other leaders, to other people. And so the, the disciples are looking at the growing community of Christians and saying, wow, we need to diversify who's involved in leadership. So they tell the group, they say, carefully select from among you, brothers, seven men who are well attested, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this necessary task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They're saying, hey, this is a legitimate need. And so you need to find people who are full of the spirit, full of wisdom. In other words, when they're using this terminology, this idea of being filled with the spirit over and over again in our, in our New Testament, this, this, this idea of being controlled, of being driven by the spirit of God. They're saying you need to find someone who's driven by the spirit of God, who, who has been given the wisdom that only God can provide. And they're saying these need to be people who are well attested. Literally right here in the Greek, this term is, is the martureo. And, and the root of it, the, the, the meaning of it is that it's someone who has a good witness. In other words, someone who's of, you know, a good report. And the root of it is, is martis, where we get our term martyr. Right? So they're saying, hey, you need to find seven men who are martyrs. These men of good report, good witnesses. So already we're seeing this, this idea of being a witness attributed to these men. This is what the ancient Greeks called foreshadowing. If you know what happens to Stephen, he dies. Uh, but we will see in this kind of, this, this filter, in this desire of, you know, how do we want these people to be defined? They're going to find Stephen. They say, hey, the proposal pleased the entire group. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And they chose others as well. But, but they say, man, one of the first standout people that comes to our minds 
full of spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith? Stephen. Good report, good witness. In other words, Stephen was living in such a way. He was denying himself. He was allowing the Lord to move through him. And what that did is it created in his life a clear motivation and a consistent message. And this is something that I I think we should aspire to be. A people who have a clear motivation and a consistent message. In other words, people should be aware of our affections and our actions. Stephen was being controlled by the Spirit. He was consistently speaking with wisdom into the lives of others. Where are we? How do we live? Would other people say that, oh yeah, that person's, Jacob is just clear and consistent. I don't think I would get those descriptors every day of my life. Why? Because we are inconsistent by nature. We, we want to kind of go from one thing to the next. We drift. We have, we've got this thing we care about. Now we care about that thing. And, and I'll tell you, I think a, a really helpful practice is maybe if you would just take a moment today or this summer to really just kind of clear your head, get out a piece of paper, and just write down. Say, hey, what am I super passionate about? If I, were, if I was just going to write down one to three things that I'm just passionate about, that I care deeply about, what would those things be? And then if you ask yourself a second question, say, okay, now if I removed all responsibilities, if they were all going to be taken care of, right? All my personal responsibilities right now. So like my job's somehow going to get done. My kids are somehow going to be cared for. My, you know, family is whatever. Like those things, just assume that they're taken care of. How would you spend your time? What would you do? What would you want to do with your time? And here's the interesting part. I would encourage you to take a moment to write down, what am I passionate about? What would I do with my time if it was just free for, I could do anything. And then ask a loved one, a spouse, a good friend, a parent, ask that person, hey, what would you say, how would you answer these questions for me? And then see how your lists match up. It's fascinating. I promise. And I think he can reveal to us, hey, what are we actually practicing? What are we actually preaching? Am I clear in, the, in what motivates me? Am I clear in how I'm living and how I'm speaking? Or am I drifting towards inconsistency? Am I drifting towards uh, a lack of clarity? But we pray, we, we say, God, I want you to take control. Because see, that's what Stephen did. He allowed the spirit of the Lord to take control of him. And, and that's why he was able to be so consistent. Because God doesn't change. He says, I'm the same I was yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so when Stephen gives his life over, when he denies himself and says, God, I want you to direct me. Then he had that consistency. He had that clarity. And we can do that. We can open up space through prayer, through time with our Lord, for him to live through us and keep us consistent. And so what does that lead to, right? So if we're living a spirit-filled life, man, what does that really look like played out? Well, well, in the life of Stephen, we see it manifesting in serving others, right? We see his life dedicated to essentially meeting the needs of other people. Uh, in verse 2, we saw, right, the, the reason he's called to the forefront is to wait on tables. That's the first presenting need that he steps in to meet. That's verse 2. In verse 8 of chapter 6, we see elaborate, elaborating on of a few more of the responsibilities and roles that he filled. Now, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. So when we look at the life of Stephen, we look at the ministry that Stephen was a part of, man, it's an incredible pairing. He's waiting on tables, and he's also performing miracles. 
What an awesome combo, right? He walks up the table and says, oh, chicken wings, just one second. Check your coat pocket. What? I don't know if exactly that's the way it played out, right? Scripture is silent on that matter, but... We know that Stephen is engaging in ministry that is at the exact same time, simultaneously, both mundane and miraculous. And I think this is something that really resonates with me. It's probably something that resonates with a lot of us. That, man, our lives can feel so mundane, so common. The interactions that we have with, with, with maybe our family or our friends or our coworkers, it's just the same conversation, it's the same thing. We get into our rhythms. Every once in a while it gets disrupted because it's you know, the weekend or it gets disrupted because it's summer or whatever. But, but man, by and large, we, we will fall into these patterns of behavior. And, and we kind of become self-reliant. And, and we feel kind of almost self-deprecating because then we, we read these stories in our scripture of like, oh, these, you know, there's miracles and signs. They're healing people. And, and we think, man, that's, that's ministry. Like, that's, that's really what's important. And yet when we look at the life of Stephen, it, yeah, there was a miraculous work, but there was also just this common serving tables, distributing food. And that should be something that encourages us, right? I mean, I'm only here today in part because a ninth grader invited me to play ultimate Frisbee with his youth group. I was also in ninth grade at that time. It wasn't like I was in college uh, and (laughs) two weeks ago. uh, But this kid, he just asked me, we were friends, and he was like, hey, do you want to go play Ultimate Frisbee? And I was like, I don't know what that is. And he was like, well, you should just come. It's easy. And so I went and played, and and that was literally my entry point into Grace Youth. And then I kept coming through high school. My family switched over. I stayed here in college. I came on staff a year into college, and, and I've been here ever since. And it's because of just an incredibly, forgettably common game of Ultimate Frisbee that some youth leaders and some youth staff were putting on on a Sunday night. That just unbelievably, forgettably common and mundane. And yet for me, it was catalytic. It was miraculous. Because God used that event to put me on a path to where I am now. To change my life in incredible ways. We never know the full extent of the eternal impact that our actions might have. I pray that one day God's just going to pull back the curtain. On the other side of eternity, when we're with him for, forever, man, I'm, I'm hoping there's that moment where he says, hey, check this out. And you're like, oh, what? Steve from Starbucks? Right? Like That's just, that's the day that I am just looking forward to. Because it is easy for us in the here and now to focus on the frustrations and completely forget about the fruit that God is growing. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. We get frustrated thinking, man, I'm telling my kid the same thing over and over again. I'm, I'm struggling with the same sin. I'm struggling with the same temptation. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing with the same coworker about the same thing. But, but man, God consistently creates eternal impact through our ability, through our willingness to deny ourselves through our self-denial and through our service of others. I mean, God uses those moments, those divinely appointed moments of eternal significance. And so how do we stay focused 
right, on, on the, the miracle? How do we stay focused on the incredible work, the fruit that God can bring through that? Well, I think it's, we need to be a people who celebrate. We need to be a people who are just quick to, to celebrate the victories that we get to see. We're not going to see all of them right now. But man, when we do, we need to grab a hold of it and we need to shout it from the rooftops. And we should be celebrating what God has done in our lives or in others' lives. That's why testimonies are so powerful. Because we're saying, man, look what God has done. Look what he's accomplished. And that gives us motivation to stick it out in the mundane. In the days that can feel just like a drag. So how do we celebrate well? Well, in the life of Stephen, we see him celebrate by speaking truth consistently to the people around him. In Acts uh, chapter 6 verse 9, we see essentially some, some opposition rise up against the church. It had been brewing for a while, but in verse 9, there were some men who stood up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. So these guys, they're they're frustrated by what's happening in this kind of new Christian, what they considered a cult in the midst of Judaism, true Judaism. And so they're they're, they're pushing back. And yet when they tried to just kind of go toe-to-toe with Stephen, one of the kind of front runners, one of the front leaders of this organization, of this new community, uh, they they weren't able to stand against him. They were unable to resist. Why? Because he was so consistent. Right? Because he was empowered by the Spirit of the Lord. This is Jesus' promise. He says, you know, you don't need to fear the world. I've overcome it. And so because they couldn't find fault with him, because they couldn't just bring him down on, on, on legitimate merit, uh, what they decided to do is they secretly instigate some men to say, well, we've heard this man speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so in other words, to bring him down, they just lie. And then we transition in scripture, in the book of Acts into chapter 7. Uh, and we see in chapter 7, basically verses 1 through 50-ish, uh, Stephen respond to this accusation. And it's incredible, right? Because Stephen, in his response, delivers one of the most unbelievable summaries and celebrations of God's work in the nation of Israel that we have ever recorded, right? It's one of the greatest, essentially, sermons that we have recorded for understanding the purpose of our lives. And it's so good that actually I'm wanting to wrap up our time this morning uh, by simply reading it to you. I just want to read to you the words that, that Stephen spoke, that, that, that God gave him in that moment. And, and I'm going to use uh, kind of a, a, an easier translation just for listening. Uh, because I, I would encourage you in this time to simply listen as a member of Stephen's audience. To just take in the truth and the celebration that he's going to present. The themes that he's going to present of God selecting, redeeming his people. Across time. And now I have to note though that, that when I preached this I preached this passage a few weeks ago at our Anderson campus. Uh, and my, my parents came. My, my, mom, my mother was there. And she told me uh, afterwards that, hey, you know, some people would probably appreciate some visuals while you're just reading. Right? Which just goes to prove that even in your 30s, your mom is still thinking about your needs. Above her own, which is amazing. I had no idea. I mean, I already knew that, but it's just reinforced. 
And so because of that, because of her wisdom, uh, I am also uh, going to provide, I, I got a collection of kind of mostly classical paintings of the different figures and situations that are being described in Stephen's sermon, okay? So I will be popping those up uh, as I read it, but I would just encourage you again just to listen and hear God speaking through Stephen in Acts chapter 7. So this was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives, come into the land that I will show you. And so Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran until his father died. And then God brought him here to this land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. But God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and to his descendants. And even though he had no children yet, God told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, said God. And in the end, they will come out and worship me here in this place. So God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob. And when Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation. Now these patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph. And they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and he rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom. So that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. And there was great misery. And our ancestors ran out of food. But Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt. So he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some of that grain. And the second time that they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers. And they were introduced to Pharaoh. And then Joseph sent for his father Jacob and all his relatives to come to Egypt, 75 people in all. So Jacob went to Egypt and he died there, as did our ancestors. And their bodies were taken to Shechem and they were buried in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamer's sons in Shechem. And as the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And this king exploited our people and he oppressed them. And he was forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so that they would die. And at that time, Moses was born a beautiful child in God's eyes. And his parents cared for him at home for three months. And when they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. And Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was powerful both in speech and in action. But one day when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. And he saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. And so Moses came to the man's defense and he avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Now Moses assumed that his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they did not. Instead, the next day he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting, and he tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you're brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard that, he fled the country. And he lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. And there his two sons were born. 
And 40 years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, saying, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groans and I've come down to rescue them. So now go, for I'm sending you back to Egypt. And so God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded, who made you a ruler and judge over us? And yet through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and their savior. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. Now Moses himself told the people, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. And Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and they wanted to return to Egypt. And so they told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us. For we don't know what's become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. And so they made an idol shaped like a calf. And they sacrificed to it. And they celebrated over this thing that they had made. And then God turned away from them. And he abandoned them. He left them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. And in the book of the prophets, it's written, was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness? No. You carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Molech, the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. But our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. And it was constructed according to the plan that God had shown to Moses. And years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into the new territory. And it stayed there until the time of King David. And David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, his son, who actually built it. However, the Most High does not live in temples made by human hands. For as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands already make both heaven and earth? So you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did. And now so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one. The Messiah whom you betrayed, whom you murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Stephen, facing down this council, this council that he knows has been gathered together. In other words, to essentially put him to death. Because that's why they bring the accusation of blasphemy, because it gives them reason to stone him to death. Staring him down, he says, you are repeating the pattern that God has seen in his people for ages. Where he moves in, he selects, he provides a path to redemption, and yet he is faced with rejection by the people he has come to save. He's telling them, man, you've, you've lost it, you missed it. 
you killed the Messiah, just like your ancestors rejected the Lord in the desert, just like they rejected him in Egypt, just like they rejected the prophets that he sent. You've rejected the Messiah. You've rejected Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying you chose, rather than to deny yourself, you've chosen to deny your Savior. And this is a theme that we see in our scripture where Paul talks about this, this, this tension that we feel between our old self and our new self. He says, you can live under the legacy of Adam or you can live under the legacy of Christ. In other words, you can deny these old ways, these old things that used to hold power over you. He says, or you can deny this new path, this, this better way. And when Stephen lays that out in the full, honest truth, The people heard this and they became furious and they ground their teeth and Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently toward heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they stone him to death. I'll tell you, one of the most significant things, one of the most wonderful things in this moment is that Stephen is looking to heaven. He's looking at Jesus who denied himself in order to deliver us, who's calling us to deny ourselves to follow him. He's seeing Jesus and he's standing. And every biblical scholar coming across this is like, whoa, what's going on? Because Jesus is always depicted in in these heavenly scenes. He's depicted sitting at the hand of God, the right hand of God. And yet in this moment, he's standing. And scholar after scholar, the the only kind of conclusion they can come to is they're saying, man, it seems that he is standing to simply accept his, his follower, to accept his son into his arms. He's standing because he's saying, man, Stephen, you're coming. I have a place for you. I've seen your work. Well done. This is what Stephen got to experience because of his self-denial. It brought true deliverance. So for us, man, I, I hope we see in Scripture, not just through the life of Stephen, but, man, you can read all through Scripture. You can read through the early church. You see time and time again where God consistently uses people who deny themselves and live for others. God uses them to create the most wonderful disruptions, the most powerful blessings in the lives of others. So how can we be those people? How can we create space for the Spirit to fill us and control us? How do we create moments where we're celebrating what God has done? How do we prepare ourselves to speak truth to ourselves from Scripture, to, to others, maybe from Scripture, from our testimony? And we're going to close this morning in worship, and we're going to be singing to God about how great and wonderful He is. But man, as we move into this time, into this kind of closing moment, I, I want us to, to come before the Lord in prayer and ask Him to show us personally what is our next step? What's our path forward? So if you would, please join me in prayer right now. God, we thank you that you have given us Lord, just an an unbelievably powerful example in the life of Stephen. Lord, an example of someone who gave everything for the cause of your kingdom. Lord, to proclaim your gospel. Lord, he embodied that that truth that, that Jesus lived out as well. That, that there's no greater 
love than, than laying down your life for the good of someone else, for the laying down the life of your brother. Lord, Stephen, he, he walked that path boldly, full of the spirit, full of faith. And Lord, we don't know what our paths look like. Lord, we, we pray that, that, that we would be able to step into those moments with the same faith. But Lord, we, we recognize that our moments are probably going to look a little bit less severe. They're probably going to feel a little bit less uh, catalytic. And yet, Lord, we know that even in the common moments, even in the mundane, Lord, you can use us in miraculous ways if we're willing to follow your lead. So God, lead us right now. If you would, just, just take a moment before we sing, before we worship together, take a moment to ask the Lord to bring to your mind Maybe just just one simple step you could take today. One simple step you could take this week to, to create space for the Spirit to move through you. Spending time in maybe His Word. Maybe just spending more time in prayer. Maybe that's your step. Maybe your step is, is, is just celebrating what God has done. Maybe taking a moment to, to, to reflect and be grateful for how God has moved in this the past year, maybe even just over the summer so far. Or maybe it's a moment where this week or today you, you, you think about me and how, how can I speak truth into these people's lives? I, I see these needs around me. I see these frustrations in my family or in my friends. And how can I bring truth to that? Maybe it's from God's word. Maybe it's from my personal experience that God has given me. But ask the Lord right now, Lord, bring to my mind what's a step I can take to live a life that's more about you and less about me. Ask him to bring that to your mind and for his spirit to guide you, to give you the motivation to take those steps. Ask him that right now.